Um, well, good morning, and um, hope you guys are having a wonderful morning. We're going to uh, just take a few moments here to pick up in John uh, chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, you turn to John chapter 17, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 1. And we're picking up kind of, we've been going through uh, uh, John, we've kind of been looking at in summary fashion, John uh, 13 through 17, which is often referred to as the upper room discourse. And we get to John 17, which is Jesus' prayer. And prior to this, of course, Jesus gives this unbelievable wealth of teaching to his disciples, and to us too, as well. And he goes through all the things, and he kind of does like a summary almost of their entire, his earthly ministry with them. And he all has some new things he throws in there too, especially, I'm getting ready to go away and I'll come back. But so there's a lot of things they still don't understand. And so he has this just incredible wealth and depth of just truth he just presented to them, and to us through these scriptures as well. And then we come to his prayer. There's no other prayer like it in all the Bible. Not even close. We have the prayer of the Son of God praying to the God the Father. And we just get to have a close and personal seat just pull up right here and hear what's on the heart of the Savior as he prays for himself, for his disciples, and for believers of all time, which includes us. It's a very powerful thing. There's a lot we can learn from this. And we're going to look at a couple of verses here this morning. Hopefully the Lord will show us some things. So if, you could, if you're able to stand for reading God's Word, uh, would you please do that? We'll pick up in verse 1. After Jesus had said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Thank you. You may be seated. And so... Jesus kind of starts off praying for himself, and this, is, this prayer is kind of divided in three parts, if you will, where the first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself, and then he goes, uh, spends about um, about 26 verses praying for his disciples, and another seven praying for believers uh, that would believe through the message of the disciples, which includes us. But, you know, if you look at Jesus, we're going to spend just a few moments here on the first five verses, not very long, because we're going to spend the bulk of our time in verses six through eight. But even when Jesus is praying for himself, look how he's doing this. He's praying in relation... Uh, to doing the Father's will and about bringing glory to the Father through his obedience to the Father's will. Even in his prayer, it's always focused on what the Father's up to. He's not just praying, Lord, you know, it's like, Father, get me out of this. Get these guys away from them. They're driving me crazy. None of that. It's the whole purpose. He's like reorienting his disciples and us. This, this, main, this main thing throughout his entire earthly ministry is that he's about the Father's will. Always. And so, we get to verse 3, and this verse 3 is a powerful verse. To me, it's probably the most significant verse in this entire chapter. One of them. It's hard to say that in the scriptures, but this verse is unbelievable. Look what it says in verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word know is not like familiarity, kind of like a friend or somebody you met, like an acquaintance. That's the highest form of an interpersonal relationship that can be. That can be. It's often used to describe a relationship between a husband and wife as far as intimacy and the closeness that they share. You can't get any closer as far as personal relationships are concerned. And Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sinned. He's reminding us here, his disciples through his prayer, <laughs> that's eternal life, to have this relationship with the Father through his Son. This, it, not just knowing about him, but knowing him, being one with him, the unity that comes through that. What an awesome thing. You know, and, uh, and it's just, uh, as we, again, as we look at this and we see the emphasis that the Savior has and the priority of his mission was to give eternal life 
so that those who receive this gift would know God in the highest and most personal way possible. And so we're going to look at that uh, in this next section here. We're just there's so much time you can spend there. I mean, years, but we always don't have that kind of time, and it wouldn't do that to you. But we're, we really want to spend. I feel led this entire week to spend most of our time in the next uh, three or four verses in verses six through eight. Look what it says here in verse six. <clears throat> this is Jesus praying for his disciples in this part. I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Now they know. What, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave them, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. We're going to look in this section of scriptures. We go through this, this part of Jesus's prayer. There's some things that we kind of get reminded of through this uh, this section, and I wrote them down. It's kind of put them this way. We get to see uh, as Jesus kind of almost like he's summarizing in some ways the things he's been teaching his disciples all up to this point, and we'll see it to the rest of the prayer. But he summarizes things that the revelation that we get from Jesus. We're going to see in this section the response to Jesus from the disciples. And we're going to see the resources of Jesus. We probably won't get to that part today. But we're going to see the first thing. We're going to look at the revelation from Jesus. And so the eleven were chosen by Jesus because he's the one who reveals himself to us. You know, apart from Jesus, no one comes to him. No one comes to the Father. He draws us to himself. There's a couple of verses that kind of illustrate this. And we're going to look at that. Look at If you have your Bibles, flip to Luke chapter 10. And on your way there, I'm going to read a verse from John chapter 15. But just head over to Luke chapter 10 and verse 17. And this is just a quick verse in John 15 and verse 16. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Again, we see this picture throughout all the scriptures of this principle of Jesus being the one who called his disciples, as well as calls believers in general. So uh, it's an important truth that we're going to look at today and see the response of the disciples to this amazing truth. Just a moment. All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 17. This is when Jesus had sent out the 72, and they're coming back, and they're all excited, okay? Look how Jesus responds to this excitement. They kind of come back kind of seeing this wrong. They're excited about what, what happened, and I love how God does this all the time. When we come back and we think we kind of understood something that we just were experienced or were a part of, and he takes that and he kind of reorients us to the scriptures about how to look at that biblically. And Jesus does this with these guys. We're coming back and he's like, that's great, but let me show you what you should, what's more important to happen, that just happened. So look at verse 17 and following. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At the time, at that time, Jesus, full of joy to the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. I kind of hold on that in the back of your mind for a second. Kind of follow that way. We're going to, make, we're going to put this together in just a second. Uh, go back, uh, switch over to, kind of keep going left, to Matthew chapter 11. This is a similar um, situation as far as timeline within Jesus' ministry. Look how it's, um, look at the account that Matthew gives us of this interchange. Chapter 11, starting in verse 25. Matthew 11 and verse 25. 
And so this is, <laughs> I love, this is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. And it fits. You talk about our prayer time. To me, this is on my mind throughout our prayer time. The end of the section. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You see this theme over and over again in the Scriptures. But listen, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You talk about a world of difference between what Jesus is offering and what the religious establishment was offering. Nothing alike. And you know, it's interesting. He uses the word yoke. Of all the things to use, you don't think of, when you hear the word yoke, you don't think what comes to mind is the instrument that's used to kind of, kind of uh, confine an animal to heavy labor and heavy burden. You know, you pull like an ox, pulling some kind of, or plowing some field, or pulling a heavy load. That's what you think of a yoke, don't you? That's what I think. It's interesting he picked that. I thought, that's an interesting thing that Lord to choose. But through this, through, this, uh, through this passage, we see something here. Jesus encourages us, you see this in verse 29-30, to exchange our weariness and our strength for his sufficiency. Because if it's his yoke, and it's his burden, you know what comes with that? His strength and his sufficiency. What the religious establishment was offering was a yoke that was heavy, oppressive, it offered no it offered no help at all. He also says he's gentle, he's humble in heart, and he offers rest for our weary souls. Hmm. You know, it's this religious establishment, but what they offered was the heavy loads, impossible burdens, and they these guys were anything but gentle and humble. Complete opposites. It should be a joy to serve our Savior. It's not a chore. It's a privilege. I don't serve God to get right with Him. I serve Him because I've been made right with Him. Those are not the same reasons. Those are not the same things. Those are totally two different heart attitudes and two different heart responses. So as we look at the response of the disciples to the heart of the Savior, we're going to look at that, and we're going to look at it by way of contrast to the heart of the responses of the Pharisees. As we kind of continue on, there's a verse that came to my mind as I was reading through this. Paul says in Philippians you know, 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. All things. Through what? Through Christ who gives us strength. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But we look at the response to the disciples in verses 6 through 8. There's three things you see that in, in the response. Jesus, Jesus is praying. He's not reminding them. It's, it's, I think it's really a way of encouragement for them and also a, and a teaching for us too. This is the response. And this is the response what it should be. To the Word of God and the Son of God. They obeyed, they accepted the Word, and He says they believed the Word. Look at 6 through 8. Let's read verses 6 and uh, flip back to uh, John 17, verses 6 through 8. I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your Word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. These three go together. It's not a list. It's not really a progression either. <laughs> Let's look at this. You cannot obey the word if you've not accepted it or believed it. And also, nor can you truly believe or accept it if you do not obey it. 
what the Pharisees were doing is they were reading the word, reading about God, but they weren't accepting it. They weren't obeying it. They weren't believing it. They kind of had some other interpretation that they come up with that would really pass down from one tradition to another. But they weren't accepting it. They weren't believing it. They certainly weren't obeying it. In fact, Jesus condemns at one point in John 5 where he says, you, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. But these are scriptures that speak about me and point to me, but you won't come to me to have life. They had the word of God that pointed them to the Son of God, but they rejected it. They wouldn't accept it. They couldn't believe it. And they certainly didn't obey it. But in his prayer, you see Jesus commending the disciples for accepting and believing and obeying. It's a big deal in God's eyes. Look at Matthew chapter 23. We're going to look at this by way of some of the other gospel narratives because we kind of look at this prayer. This prayer, kind of, there's some things that, you know, because we towards the end of this earthly life in John's account, you know, this is towards the end of his earthly ministry, so it's good to go back and kind of see some things that are being, in some ways, kind of alluded to or kind of understood as far as the things that they've done and all the teachings that he's been, and the things that they've experienced in their journey with Christ. This is a picture of the Pharisees and Jesus' encounter with the disciples were there and they were hearing this teaching. Look at the opposite response of accepting, believing, and and um, and obeying. This is uh, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowd, this by the way, he, of course again, he, he healed on the Sabbath. Don't do that. You know, Don't break one of the rules that some man has come up with, because if you do that, shame on you. You know, That's what legalism is, by the way. Legalism is a rigid form of... It's a rigid, lifeless form of religion that totally just turns people away from the heart of God. God hates religion. Uh, you cannot, there's, there's not, the strongest language, you'll see in this chapter alone, the strongest language that God reserves of condemnation is reserved for the religious establishment who are continually pushing people or preventing people or misleading people away from the heart of God. God won't put up with that. You know, it's interesting, by the way, if you'll think about this. When Jesus, when Jesus, before we get into this, before Jesus, when he was going through the temptation in Matthew's account in chapter 4, it's also in Luke's account, but Matthew has it in the chronological order. There's three temptations. I used to think, well, I guess three and Jesus was done. No. The first one he says, you know, Jesus has been there, he's tired 40 days, and Satan comes and says, you know, since you're the, he said if, but that really in the, in the Greek language is really translates since. If Jesus knew who Jesus was, or Satan knew who Jesus was, he wasn't doubting that. He's like, well, since you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus responded with Scripture. He says, written, man's, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan tries another attack. Okay. Satan tries to use Scripture the next time. He says, well, you know what? Takes him to the highest point of the temple. He says, you know what? Why don't you jump off here, Jesus? Because it's written concerning you. He'll give his angels charge over, charge over you, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus says, huh. it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Then he takes to the high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, I'll give all these to you. They've been given to me. I'm going to whoever I want to. Jesus, that's when Jesus puts a stop to it. Just away from the setting where it's written, you shall serve the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. He put up those two temptations up to the point where it started to point worship away from the Father. That's where Jesus drew a line in the sand and says, no more. You can't go any further. I'm not going to put up with it. And He told him away from him. And we shared this before. What was Satan's response? Nothing. You know why? Because he was commanded to leave. He didn't sit there and argue. Well, what about this? No. When Jesus speaks, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And the Bible says one day it's all going to happen. But when Jesus speaks in the situation, it, the situation has to do, or the person has to do whatever he tells it to do. 
Satan had to obey. Jesus will not put up with worship that was, or anything that would lead his people to worship or serve anyone other than the Father. He has no tolerance for that. So look at chapter 23. He's getting with these guys who are leading his people, or the people of Israel, further and further away from God's heart every time they open their mouth for the most part. Then Jesus said to the crowds and, his, and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, um, before we get to the next part, we're going to pick up in verse 23. He goes to the next verse. He goes through some specific things they were doing wrong that were just clearly wrong. But before we do that, look back to uh, verse uh, 3. He says, you must obey them and do everything they tell you. He's not talking about the junk they're talking about. He's talking about these guys were put in leadership. And there's, there's, God's a God of order. And it's hard to submit to bad leadership. Just like we had to submit to leadership in our country. But these guys were put in leadership positions. And Jesus says, you know what? Yet, as far as the law is concerned, you need to obey the law. That hasn't changed. You still need to do what God's word says to do. But look what he says in the verse 3. But do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. And so, they're hypocrites. Look at verse 23. Look what Jesus says here in that same chapter, in verse 23. He gives them a very clear and direct warning in this section we're going to kind of uh, spend just a moment here on. What are you teachers of the law and Pharisees? You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, and your cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guys, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. These guys were tithers, but their hearts were so foul. It says this, you neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You know what these guys were doing? You're talking about straining out a net and swallow a camel. It's kind of a weird little phrase. They were so rigid, they'd take these little cloths and put them over their drinking cups. And when they poured water into them, it would act like a strainer. So no little bugs or gnats would get in their drinking water because gnats were considered unclean. So that's the smallest of unclean animals. And so they didn't want that to get in their drinking water because then that might pollute them. They might be unclean, you know, because they're Pharisees, you know. And so that's how you drink water. And so they drink water that way. And Jesus like going, You'll do that, but you end up swallowing a camel, which is one of the largest of ugly animals. In other words, you're doing all these little things and you focus on these little minutiae details that make no sense, that have nothing to do with the heart of God. You miss them so much that you end up swallowing a camel, being completely unclean. And so it's a great, vivid, it's like Jesus used hyperbole here to get a point across. God, you are missing this. Pick up in verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. You, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that in one conversation over and over and over again? That's probably not received very well as you can imagine. 
If you ever wonder why they want to crucify him, you can see from this chapter. They wanted to get rid of somebody who was exposing what they were. Verse 27, he says, You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people's righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now we see this. This is a... Um, um, he gives two very vivid examples here. The first one is about the cup. You know, it's like they got the outside of the cup looking all polished. Can you imagine getting a glass of water and you got the outside cup, you clean it, but the inside is full of filth? I mean, who would drink from that? Makes no sense. There's, but they focused on the outside. You know why they do that, by the way? That's what, that's what we can see. That's what can be measured. But God doesn't look at the outside, does he? He doesn't judge the externals. He looks at the heart. That's why Jesus says, first clean the inside of the cup. In other words, if the inside of the cup is clean, the outside will be clean eventually. Because the inside is only clean through what Jesus does for us. Once you put your faith in Christ, once you repent and put your faith in Christ, you're clean. We've been made clean. And he'll, he'll take care of the outside too. You go back to the, the, the chapter 13 where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. What a great picture. Their feet had gotten dirty. And Jesus like, you don't need a bath again. You do need to get your feet washed from time to time. Because he's talking to believers. Those 11, 11 of them anyway at the time. 11 of them who were followers of Christ. The same true for us. There's time we're going to get our feet dirty because of this world that we live in. That's why we have to come back. That's why the, our relationship with Jesus Christ is of preeminence. Because we have to keep coming to Him and stay walking, fellowship with Him, commune with Him. So when our feet do get dirty, we can go to Him and have our feet clean. So our lives and our hearts can be in a position to be used by Him, to hear from Him, and to obey Him. Now let's look at this. You know, and looking, kind of pulling back here and Look at the um, kind of example or the uh, comparison between these two groups. The response of the disciples that we see in this, in this prayer and throughout the gospel narratives, the 11, as opposed to the religious leaders of their day. Those who focus on the externals will always be about some rigid standard or code of conduct, making sure that everyone keeps in line and measuring up to some religious code or set of rules. And they love to use their standard, which is usually almost always man-made or at least man-altered. They might take the scriptures and kind of twist it to fit, you know, whatever preference they may have. And they'll use it as a measuring stick to try and puff themselves up. But look what a Christ follower does. Or the disciples did. Disciples and followers of Christ, because of the internal changes brought about by Jesus, will love others as God has loved them. Remember what Jesus said earlier? I want you to love as I have loved you. We'll serve others as Christ served us. Are we willing to wash somebody's feet? In love, and mercy. It says this, we'll love mercy. I love that. I got this from Micah 6. I love that verse. We'll love mercy and we'll walk humbly with our God. And we'll strive to build up those in the body of Christ. It won't be about my praise or my promotion. It'll be about the praise and promotion of Jesus Christ. See, that's the difference between a Pharisee and a Christ follower. Or a religious person. I use that word Pharisee kind of generically. A Pharisee will seek their own praise and their own promotion. A Christ follower will seek the praise and promotion of Jesus. Just like Paul said when he got to Corinth. Remember guys, when I got here, I pretended to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. And this is from a former Pharisee. Who got it, you know? A Pharisee would be agenda driven. A Christian or a Christ follower will be gospel driven. Is this, will this be, is this where the Father's heart is? Because that's where I want to be. That's the attitude of a believer. And the Pharisees, as you see through here, they, reject, they read the word of God, but they rejected the Son of God. 
They practiced their religion, but rejected a relationship with God. So I ask this question as we get ready to wrap up here, and um, real quickly here, are we believing the word? Are we accepting the word? Are we obeying the word? Maybe as a believer, there's some parts of scriptures, you know, we, I, I believe it, I accept it, but I'm really having a hard time obeying it right now. But that's not, that's not a place for a Christian to be. That's called disobedience. Sin. We'll try to kind of, we'll try to doctor that up and make it sound a little bit nicer than that. Well, I'm just wrestling with God. No, that's sin. Disobedience is sin. You don't wrestle with God, by the way. I've used that before in error many times. You don't wrestle with God. If you wrestle with God, then you're in disobedience. When God speaks, that's pretty much it. For me to wrestle with God kind of assumes that, well, God, I need to, let me check you on that. I think i got a better plan, you know? What really is going on is like, God, I really don't want to do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a hard time wanting to, even wanting to do that, God. That's what that really is about, isn't it? I like to use the word wrestling. It sounds better, doesn't it? It sounds a little more spiritual. It's not. I ask myself this a lot. You know, Lord, am I thinking biblically in this situation? Am I responding biblically? What I know of your word? I know what your word has said in this situation. Am I responding the way you've called me to respond? I love his prayer when he goes to this section with these disciples. You see, that's apparently what he's, that's kind of his summary of them. They accepted the word. They believed the word. They obeyed it. What a great testimony for these 11. They, didn't, they were still clueless for the most part, but they had that right. And Jesus can work with that. He can work with people who are clueless, who are goofy, who are just absent-minded or whatever. As long as they're not rebellious, you know? Who have a heart to receive and accept the word. To believe it and obey it. That's what he's looking for. Remember, the Bible says time to time these guys were 11 unschooled, ordinary men. But the world took note that they'd been with Jesus. That, made, that makes all the difference. Look at John 17, 3 one more time. <clears throat> now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, who you have seen. Does your religion or my religion do that? Does my understanding of God's Word, my reading of God's Word, my application of God's Word for that purpose? Is it just to gain information or does it bring transformation? If I open this book and I pick up more tidbits and information about God, but I'm not transformed. I've missed it. God doesn't give me His truths, and He doesn't reveal to me the sins in my life or the situations I'm in just for information. The Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul, a former Pharisee, said it best. I'm going to read this, and we'll close with this. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to read it, but I believe I am. It's Philippians chapter 3. I love this. He, he was one of this group. But then when he gets saved, he's never the same again. And look at this wealth of wisdom he has from this. This is chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 1 of Philippians 3. And we'll close with this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision. He's talking about the guys, Judaizers coming in and say, you have to be circumcised this way in order to be right with God. And he's like, the people who are really circumcised are those who repented, repented towards God and put their faith in Jesus. That's the true circumcision. Not, their, not your nationality, not some procedure that's been done. The true circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. Verse, uh, verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. 
then he gives these reasons. Oh, I have myself a com uh, reason for such confidence. And he kind of gives some examples. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, I'm in that group of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Look at, look at his um, statement after that that kind of explains away what he thinks of that now. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of what? Knowing Christ. Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The, righteous, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Look in verse 10. I want to what again? I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. What's eternal life? To know God in Jesus Christ. Not know about Him. Not have information about Him. But when you know Him, the transforming power of that relationship changes everything. You don't have to worry about the outside. A lot of people get, and sometimes we're not careful, we'll get so focused on the externals, and we'll miss the heart of God. I said it before, and it's, I, can, I can say this every day, and I don't know if that's probably even enough to say this as a reminder. Guys, number one priority for you and for me and every believer is not what you do for Him. It's just not. Is it important to Him? Of course. But it's not number one. It's not even close. It's your relationship. If you're a born-again believer, His number one priority and concern for you is your relationship with the Father through the Son. Everything rises and falls with that. Everything. Because that's about the gospel. It's a gospel-driven life. It's a gospel-focused life. Because it's been a gospel-redeemed life. You know? I didn't earn it. I didn't I didn't merit it. And I can't keep or lose it on my own ability or my own actions or lack of. It was bought and paid for in full by the Son of God. That's why everything rises and falls with Him. And knowing Him. Knowing Him. Not knowing about Him, but knowing Him.